When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another edition of Investment Ideas. I'm the host here, Ed Harrison, and I have the distinct pleasure of talking yet again to the great David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research. Dave, welcome back. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Ed. I would just say that there's some people that might say uh, great David Rosenberg is an oxymoron, so I tread carefully there. Well, you say that because just before we came on, we were talking about the great cognitive dissonance that's going on as a result of what I would call actually a mania. I don't want to put words in your mouth because if as soon as you start talking about it from that perspective, people will start downvoting you. But uh, I think that we're in extraordinary times. Who would have thought that you could have a pandemic uh, close down the entire economy and the, the uh, outcome would be stocks to a, a record high across the globe? I mean, that's where we are today. Right. Well, because I guess, you know, what the uh, opposite side of the argument would be that uh, that the policy response uh, has been even greater uh, than the uh, than that initial negative shock. So I think that's one part of it uh, that uh, that looks as though both the uh, the monetary intervention by the Fed and other central banks and and the radical fiscal stimulus uh, are outlasting. Uh, well, they certainly outlasted uh, the closure of the economy, the shutdowns, but uh, people believe that uh, that the stimulus will be ongoing and will continue to uh, uh, outlast uh, whatever uh, lingering impacts there's going to be, uh, you know, from the uh, end of the pandemic. Of course, on top of that, I think we'd have to acknowledge, uh, even amongst uh, those of us that are most cautious or most bearish, that, you know, the vaccines were a really big deal. I, I mean, I remember... Uh, being lulled into that view uh, just a year ago uh, about how it takes, you know, three to five years to get a vaccine, you know, that we're going to have to find some way to get out of this, uh, but it's going to be such a painfully slow approach, or we'll just have to burn our way through it like we did with the Spanish flu over a century ago. But, you know, at the same time, I think we have to acknowledge that uh, the vaccinations uh, were a real game changer uh, compared to what our mindset was this time last year. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, one of the reasons that I brought you on was because uh, you have a what I would consider a contrarian view to the general uh, narrative right now. I want to talk to some of that, especially with regard to the 30-year bond or long bonds in general, how in Q1 they had their worst quarter uh, in 40 years. But before we get into that and the big eye inflation, I want to talk a little bit about the here and now, because that picture is a longer term picture. The here and now is really a lot about technical analysis. I was telling you when you came on uh, right before we started, you I was reading your piece about your technical analyst and what you guys are looking at and saying that. Yeah, I want to hear what's, uh, what's happening, especially because it seems like the market is churning right now. There's a rotation going on. The Russell 2000 hit a peak in, in um, March. Large cap growth has sort of rolled over to a certain degree. What's going on from a technical perspective that we can profit from over the next short-term period? Well, look, I think that the uh, that rotation that we had uh, from growth to value uh, also happened, by the way, uh, you know, coming out of the, uh, uh, the Great Recession uh, back in 2010, 2011. Uh, when you're taking a look at the last cycle, uh, you know, value uh, did outperform growth 20% of the time, uh, but growth outperformed value 80% of the time. So I always, I like the fact that people call it the value trade. 
because uh, it's not really uh, a trend. Um, you, you really need to have the value uh, narrative work on a sustainable basis if you believe uh, in accelerating uh, economic growth, uh, closing of the output gap, uh, inflationary pressures, uh, and a bear steepening in the yield curve. Uh, and that brings you to a rotation of value, which of course, you know, we've had for the better course of the past uh, six to eight months, it seems to have basically stalled out uh, just in the past few weeks. Of course, small caps benefit from that as well because uh, so much of the small caps are loaded with financials and financials, of course, benefit from the steepening yield curve. Um, but that's what you need to, to drive it going forward. Inflation, inflation expectations, uh, bear steepener, the yield curve, uh, accelerating growth, uh, expectations. Uh, but we've reached a point right now, Ed, where um, and I'm, I'm not going to say that none of that's going to happen. Um, but even if it does happen, it's already priced in. Uh, the markets have already priced in. It's, it's, it, we're almost at the exact uh, mirror image of where we were back in March of uh, 2020, uh, when you started noticing uh, that uh, uh, the market was rallying uh, on bad news. And that's always a sign that all the bad news is priced in. Uh, and now all of a sudden, you know, you, you know, everybody likes to pick their favorite index. One day the Dow might be at a new high, oops, no, it rolls over, but the NASDAQ might be at a new high or the S&P. Uh, but it seems to me, uh, and especially if you're taking a look at, uh, at the NASDAQ, uh, seems to have put in a peak about two months ago, uh, ditto for the small caps. Uh, a lot of the leadership in that value trade uh, seems to have petered out. Uh, a lot of these segments of the market had a lot of catching up to do from a value, relative valuation standpoint, that valuation gap has been closed. But what I'm saying mostly is that um, a lot of the inflation in the rates market, uh, a lot of the growth uh, in the stock and commodity markets, uh, th that's already in the price. Uh, so where do you go from here? Uh, like I said, you go back to a year ago uh, and um, it, it didn't take anything more than just the bad news not getting worse to drive the stock market and risk assets higher. So you have to ask yourself the question, and especially from the value proposition, because value works best when growth is accelerating and inflation expectations are moving up. Uh, that's already happened. Uh, incrementally, the question is going to be, what would reinforce that trade uh, even greater in the next several months? Um, and I'm, I'm skeptical. I think there's probably too much of that already priced in. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly for me is uh, the bonds. Uh, so when we're talking about the near term and tactical uh, thinking, bonds really, you know, they we had the worst quarter in 40 years and then suddenly they've gone sideways. You know, they're doing they've done nothing. They made two runs at 175 and then pulled back and we're now in the 160s. What's going on there? Why is it that we're not seeing uh, bonds sell off uh, more than they, than they have. Right, that's just classic, call it bear market math, where from a total return standpoint, and you know when the 10-year note is 0.5%, um, you don't need to have much of an increase in yields to generate a negative return. Uh, you know, if we go back 30 years when the 10-year note was over 10%, a one percentage point move would knock down your total return, but it would still be positive. So. You know, I know that's what people like to say. Worst year, worst quarter uh, for treasuries uh, in 40 years or on record. You know, you know what's interesting? I never heard anybody ever say when we had the 34% down in the stock market uh, in February, March of last year. Nobody talked about, oh, you know, worst, worst month for the stock market, you know, since the great financial crisis. No, people in the equity market don't talk like that. <laughs> they just say, uh, you got to buy the dips. Uh, and that was a pretty big dip. But nobody talked about, oh, worst month since whenever. But for bonds, because bonds are a detested asset class, don't you see? Um, people are so frustrated. It, the, the jubilation, when you look at the financial and business media and you read the Wall Street research, the jubilation and celebration over bond yields going up uh, was palpable because it just justifies your view that growth is gonna be accelerating. We're gonna have the roaring 20s coming out of this. Huge inflation, huge growth. The Fed's behind the curve. And, and so it's been very frustrating. I'm watching this on the sidelines in amusement. 
Uh, yeah, that, you know, we were supposed to be at 2% of the 10-year note by now. Of course, that's still the forecast, but it hasn't happened yet. As you said, uh, we got as high as, I think, 1.78 on the 10-year intraday. And we rolled down about 20 basis points since then, and we're in a bit of a holding pattern. But uh, the point is well made. Uh, I think that when you go to uh, the rates market, uh, you're looking at the five-year, five-year forwards, or you're taking a look at the one-year, nine-year forwards, and you're actually taking a look at the futures curve, at the strip curve, to see what is the market telling you where the Fed is going to be at the peak of the funds rate in the next cycle. And the market's telling you we're going back to two and a half to two and three quarters percent. You see what I'm saying is that when you're taking a look at the forward curve, it's already telling you we're going back to a funds rate that the Fed couldn't even achieve in any sustainable form in the last cycle when the unemployment rate got to three and a half percent and we had tax cuts and tariff increases and populism and nationalism and the end of globalization and all that stuff that was supposed to cause huge inflation. And Jay Powell couldn't even get the funds rate above two and a half percent. And then in 2019, he's cutting rates three times. The market's gone to price in peak funds, actually a funds rate higher than the peak of the last cycle and inflation of roughly two and a half percent. So, you know, we're already there in terms of talking. I mean, unless you think we're going back to something more sinister on the inflation side, unless you believe that 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 the supply is never coming back on stream, that all the all the reopenings are going to bring back demand. But no, no, no. The reopening phase won't bring back supply and we're going to have a multi year inflation process. Well, if you're that's your view, you're entitled to your view. (laughs) I have a different view. But right now, the the bond market is priced for peak inflation and peak Fed funds, prematurely in my view. And that's where the value is uh, in the treasury market right now. Yeah, very interesting, because I think that is where the rubber hits the road in terms of the longer term. So, I mean, we can make the segue now into thinking about what, you know, instead of talking about technical analysis and tactical plays into why it is that we're seeing this stall out in the uh, reopening trade, the, the value, and why it is that we're seeing a stall out in, uh, in bonds. It's almost as if uh, the market is saying, okay, uh, we want more that uh, now we're almost to the full reopening. The United States is very well along the way to vaccination. And now the proof is in the pudding. So what are your expectations for the rest of 2021 from an economic perspective? And then do you have any thoughts on 2022? In answer to your first question, I think the markets are telling you that uh, a lot is already priced in. Uh, I mean, we just had a let's say in the past day, we had uh, year-over-year industrial profits in China. Uh, they're up more than 90% year-over-year. You couldn't have sold that story 12 months ago. Uh, the Shanghai index didn't even budge. And in fact, it's you can argue in a correction phase right now. What's that telling you? It's telling you, you know, that, 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 preview, that, that the good news is already priced in. If the markets are supposed to be forward-looking, they've already priced this in. What do you do for an encore? Uh, we got some really strong Korean GDP data. The Korean Kospi didn't really react to it. It was priced in. It's like, you know, when, it's like when, when the, when the we, we had a month last year, I think it was in April, where retail sales were down like, you know, 15%. <laughs> and I remember that day, the S&P was up 20 basis points. Well, you'd say, well, what's the S&P up 20 basis points? We just had a, a historic decline in retail sales. I think it was the April numbers that came out in May last year. Uh, well, you know, you would look at it and say, well, it's the markets are telling you it's it's already in the price. And so the bond market's in a resting place right now, Ed, because a lot of the news we're talking about is already priced in. Uh, you're asking me about the rest of the year. Well, look, let's take a look at what is the, when we, let's be honest with each other. What are the primary sources of vitality in the U.S. Government economy? spending. Go, yeah, Government stimulus spending. checks and, and, and vaccinations. Right. Well, you know, the U.S. economy, you know, I, I'm, I'm here in Toronto, you know, we're locked down. We're where the U.S. was like six to nine months ago. But the everybody, look, you see it in the mobility and engagement data. Of course, you know, the Dallas Fed, I don't think is, is publishing those anymore, uh, maybe for good reason. Uh, most of the economy is already reopened, uh, which is great news. But it means from an economic standpoint, if you're looking at rate of change, uh, a lot of that delta 
is already behind us in terms of re- people talk about reopening, reopening, reopening. I don't know. My friends in Vegas tell me the casinos are filled. So, you know, maybe, um, you know, uh, uh, foreign travel and tourism, uh, commercial real estate, these are things that will come back last, but most of the economies are already reopened, which is great news uh, from a human standpoint, obviously, uh, and from an economic standpoint. But you know what, in the final analysis, what you ultimately focus on in our business, which is financial markets and tying in the macro and the financial is that we pay for growth. It's about rate of change. Well, most of that reopening trade is behind us. Now, what about these stimulus checks? Well, we know a couple of things. We know that when the stimulus checks ran out last fall, uh, we had negative retail sales in October, November, December. We know looking at the monthly GDP data last year, and you can get GDP monthly, because quarterly averages can sometimes distort the pattern of what's happening in a given quarter. But most people don't know that from the end of September to the end of December of 2020, real GDP actually contracted at almost a 3% annual rate. One, next thing you know, uh, Donald Trump in his last hurrah is signing a $900 billion uh, spending bill on December 27th, which of course, next thing you know, January retail sales uh, skyrocket. And then we have the Biden uh, um, uh, spending plan. And so you're quite right. A lot of this is fiscal stimulus. Uh, a lot of it went to state and local governments, uh, went to schools, went to the vaccination program. A lot of it, obviously, to stimulus checks and to people that actually don't even need it. Um, but the point I'm making is that uh, everything here is temporary. I mean, this is not a 10-year tax cut under Ronald Reagan in 1986. This is not a 10-year tax cut under uh, George W. Bush. This is not a 10-year tax cut uh, under Donald Trump. This is There's nothing permanent about this. And that's when the Fed talks about transitory. And people just roll their eyes. Oh, it's tra- there's that word again, transitory. But you know, really, what, what isn't transitory? It's not as if, unless you believe we're going to roll into a situation where the U.S. is going to follow Europe into a, uni, uh, into a universal basic income, uh, into some national welfare scheme, well, we can, we can discuss if America uh, really, the, the election was really fought over whether we're going to take America to a European-style model. Uh, I'm not so sure uh, that's what that was about. And U.S. election cycles uh, are two-year cycles in any event. But what we know is that these stimulus checks, and even if a small part gets spent in a month or two, it has a gargantuan impact on the data, as we just saw with the March retail sales numbers, which will last for a few more months. But that's the operative word. You know, what multiple, or how do you capitalize a few months worth of stimulus-driven economic activity? This is just basically cash for clunkers or tax rebates uh, on steroids. Uh, we've seen this before. We had tax rebates under George W. Bush, a nice little gimmick. Of course, that went to people that were working because you had to pay, pay taxes. These stimulus checks and extended jobless benefits go to everybody or mostly everybody. Uh, but at the same time, they're going to run out. And we saw what happened late last year is we had the economy sputter. But then we had another few rounds of stimulus. Will there be more rounds of stimulus? I mean, who knows? But the next round of stimulus that Trump signed on to on December 27th only happened <laughs> when the economy started to relapse. So what I'm saying is that it, you know, we're going to have a different economy and a different narrative, I think, after July. My view has a, a lifeline that takes me past July. And I will just uh, scream, uncle, I'm wrong. If the economy does not slow down precipitously uh, past July, uh, I will say, look, I, I was dead wrong on this. I totally underestimated uh, the so-called dry powder that people have in terms of savings that's going to go right into the economy that we don't really need all the stimulus after all, you know, we'll see. But I know the history of these stimulus checks is that once they subside, and I'm saying even with the economy reopened, the fiscal drag, the fiscal withdrawal we're going to have after July into the end of the year is going to be massive. I, and I don't really understand why the consensus is is so heavily on the other side of this call. But I'll tell you this much, Ed, I'll tell you this much. When you back out the Fed's forecast, the Fed's newly minted forecast from the last meeting, uh, and you trace out uh, their growth based on what we know the first quarter is going to be, what they're telling you the Q4 over Q4 number is going to be, and you trace out a reasonable pattern for the second and third quarter, because we know second quarter is going to be huge. We know that. When you trade, when you back all this out, 
on the on the back of an envelope, you see that the Fed's actually telling you that they think the economy is going to stagnate in the fourth quarter. The Fed is implicitly telling you, if you're paying attention, uh, that the economy is going to stagnate in the fourth quarter. And it's interesting that they didn't change their 2022 growth forecast. They just marked to market everything based on this temporary stimulus. Well, look, if you're a central banker and you believe that the economy is not going to do any better next year than what you thought it was going to do previously, and that all we have here is a near-term bump and then the economy actually stagnates in the fourth quarter, why would you be moving interest rates or doing anything on that backdrop? So central banks have to make up their mind, is this uh, a blip on a trend or a fundamental shift on the trend? And the Fed's telling you that the trend hasn't shifted. We just have a temporary deviation and that's all. Well, then you don't, you don't do anything in that environment and they're not. And maybe that's what the bond market's coming to grips with because I'll tell you one thing, and look, Ed, you've written about this, about the bond vigilantes. Uh, that you know that the Fed, it's interesting because at the beginning when these yields were really popping, right? Uh, several months ago, the Fed wasn't saying a whole lot. Even Powell wasn't saying a whole lot. Then all of a sudden, it wasn't just Fed officials and some, some Fed bank presidents that histor historically were like huge policy hawks are all coming out and saying the same thing. Uh, so that's what I found interesting is, is how the Fed, and you're asking me how bond yields have managed to consolidate. Well, the Fed has done a pretty good job pushing back over the course of the past month or so. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, yeah, you know that's a ton to chew on. I I, I want to go towards the real real economy, but we're already getting into the central bank action. So let's let's uh, run there because yeah, the bond vigilantes. Basically, the the paradigm is is that the bond vigilantes uh, they hold the Fed over a uh, a fire and put the Fed's feet to that fire and they yell uncle, uh, you know, when it starts to burn, but. Really, the way that I'm thinking about it is that uh, the Fed can continue to do what it's doing for a longer period of time. We know that the Bank of Canada has already started to withdraw some of their stimulus. The question I have is, uh, what is the Fed going to say later this week? Uh, are they going to double down on this concept that we're taking a wait and see approach? Or is the Bank of Canada at the margin giving them the ability to say, okay, uh, things are, are, are moving in a hot way and uh, we, might, uh, we might withdraw some stimulus uh, at some point uh, in 2022, late 2021? Well, look, firstly, I think that the Bank of Canada uh, is, a, uh, is, is a special case in this regard. Uh, I don't know if there's been another central bank, maybe outside of the BOJ, that's been cornering uh, the market for uh, government bonds as much as the Bank Canada has been. Uh, and, uh, you know, if left unchecked, uh, the Bank Canada was on its way in the next year, Ed, towards owning over half the market for government Canada bonds. Uh, so there was a lot of concern over what that would mean for market liquidity. Uh, and at the same time, uh, because of this Tremendous. I mean, Canada lucked into this commodity boom, you know, through no making of whatever Canada did. I mean, it really started when you really think about the commodity boom. It started when OPEC Plus uh, started cutting production a year ago, and we go from negative on oil prices uh, under a different uh, revenue stream for the government of Canada to sixty dollars on WTI, and now we have a different stream on revenue. So the, the revenues. In, in Ottawa have come in quite a bit higher than expected. So you would expect therefore uh, that the bank would be tapering its asset purchases, uh, which is what it did. Uh, people will say, well, you know, they, they, they tied it to an improving economic outlook. So this is something more, this is a real taper. You know, to me, that's just uh, more of a nuance than anything else. Um, I think that uh, uh, the Bank of Canada certainly uh, you know, did voice, uh, you know, its intent on possibly raising rates earlier than uh, expected. Uh, that much is true. They, they, they pushed that up, say, by six months. 
Um, but really, who knows what life is going to look like by the end of 2022. I mean, it's not as if they've shifted their guidance over the next six to 12 months. And, and they acknowledge that they don't really know. Uh, and that uh, the estimates of the output gap are hugely uncertain. Um, so, you know, the bank tweaked its uh, commentary. It certainly did have an impact that day on the bond market, the Canadian dollar. But uh, to think that, um, uh, you know, for, and by the way, I, I don't think the Bank Canada is going to be moving rates as quickly as a lot of people think. I'm on the other side of that trade. I don't think Canada operates in a vacuum. And I think the positive terms of trade shock from commodities is not something I'd be betting on uh, going forward for the next couple of years. Commodity cycles um, come and go pretty quickly, uh, as we've seen in the past. Uh, but to talk about the impact on other central banks, uh, I mean, look, we had the BOJ meeting uh, today. I, I didn't hear the Bank of Japan mention Tiff Malcolm of the Bank Canada. We had the Ricks Bank meeting. I don't think that they mentioned much about the Bank of Canada. Uh, and so uh, I find it interesting that I've been reading, uh, you know, in a lot of different uh, journals, how the Bank of Canada is, gonna, is the trailblazer for other central banks. I sort of look, I'm from, I'm here in Toronto. I sort of chuckle a little bit uh, that a country that's 3% of global GDP is going to be the trailblazer for other central banks. But so far, no central bank has mentioned Tef Macklem and the Ricks Bank and the BOJ didn't change their cadence one iota. Uh, and I think the Bank of Canada might be just a little bit overly optimistic. Remember, it's the same Bank of Canada in January that was at the very cautious end of all the forecasts out there on Bay Street. <laughs> and now they've got the pom-poms out on the sidelines. Maybe the truth is somewhere in between. Uh, but, you know, the point I'm making is that, no, I, I don't see that there's any cause uh, for the Fed uh, to do anything. Uh, you know, the Fed actually is model driven. Uh, the Fed is not sitting there in front of the Bloomberg screens watching the Baltic Dry Index. Uh, and watching uh, commodity prices. Uh, and that they full well know that everything here is in fact transitory. And I think that um, it, it's egregious to believe that the reopenings will only have an impact on demand, but not an impact on supply. Uh, to me, it's really not clear headed thinking uh, that these supply constraints today are gonna be around three or six months from now. Of course, the supply constraints will ease uh, as the economy reopens. Uh, of course, that as these generous unemployment insurance subsidies wear off, people will be more willing to come back to work. So I just find, because I've been doing this 35 years, that I see so many people on the inflation story hyperventilating uh, and extrapolating what's happening today into the future, which I think is a very big mistake. Uh, maybe an equal a mistake to be banging your fist on the table about deflation uh, in March, April, and May of last year. Uh, we had a, a shock. The pandemic changed a lot, but a lot of the disruption was not a permanent situation uh, any more this year than was the case last year. Last year, we had an initial shock on demand that was greater than the shock on supply. We had several months of negative CPI prints. Uh, and now what's happened is the opposite end of that narrative, where the supply side is coming back slower than the demand side. So we're going to have to put up with several months, as we already have, with higher PPI prints, higher CPI prints. This notion that commodity prices drive inflation. If you look at the, at the commodity cycle back to 1950, there, there had to have been about at least a dozen commodity cycles. They come and they go. They get hoisted on their own petard. The reason why is because supply ultimately comes back. And it's not going to be any different this time around. If you're going to tell me that, well, wages, wages are going to come back, well, you know, we'll, we'll see about that. We'll see about that. You know, I'll, I'll stick to my guns. Uh, I'm looking at the U6, the broadest measure of unemployment. It's close to 11%. When it gets closer to 8%, I'll say, hey, wage inflation is coming back. That, that, that's probably going to be several years away. As it stands right now, we have an industry capacitization rate of 74%. That's the unemployment rate in the goods producing sector, okay? And we have uh, a headline U3 unemployment rate of 6%. So I'll just tell you, the last time we had a U3 unemployment rate of six and a cap U rate of 74 was in September of 2008, by the way, when oil prices were over $100. But tell me what inflation and the economy did 12 months down the road. Tell me that you want to be bearish on treasuries. Uh, but remember in September of 08, uh, three months earlier, 
the ECB did raise rates, the Fed had actually switched to a tightening bias in its directive. And that's what I mean about the most dangerous thing in this business is extrapolating what's happening today to what's going to happen down the road. Well, you know, let me take the uh, the devil's advocate route here uh, with you, Dave, because you were asking uh, what's going to happen, uh, you know, when the stimulus runs out and what are these people thinking about when they're thinking about inflation? Maybe they're thinking about the baton hand, uh, baton handoff. What they're saying is, is look, you know, in September, October, November, uh, bad things were happening in the United States. There was no vaccine. That's why uh, when uh, the stimulus checks ran out and the U.S. had these rolling lockdowns, that's why consumer uh, uh, spending fell off a cliff because these guys, you know, they were in lockdown, uh, half of them. But now we have the vaccine. And so when the stimulus runs out, what we're going to see is the pent-up demand uh, from all the people who are going out who couldn't go out uh, the last time the stimulus checks uh, ran out. And that uh, is going to drive growth, not just for the short term, but for a much longer period of time. And eventually, that's going to lead to uh, inflation, not just because of supply shocks, but because that there's going to be so much demand. That's what people are saying. What do you think about that narrative? Even with um, that wave that we had last last fall that you just discussed, um, if you're taking a look at mobility engagement indices, they were still improving. Uh, so uh, the reality is that people were still going out, uh, even during the pandemic. Um, and even during that wave, people were going out uh, and, um, and, and, and uh, then they uh, shut off the taps to some extent I tied that more towards uh, what was happening on the income side. Uh, now you could say, well, but employment's coming back right now, but employment is coming back, but they're coming back in the lowest wage sectors. That's why a lot of people aren't incentivized to go back because they weren't making a lot of money. But once these benefits terminate and there's clear demand for workers in the restaurant sector and the hotel accommodation sector, uh, you know, these people make 40% less than the average wage. So we're not going to be getting any sort of big push uh, towards uh, big income growth. Um, it's going to be a replacement of income. You're going to have to go to work in these low-wage, low-skilled industries. Uh, so you're going to replace your government check with uh, your normal uh, working check. Is, so you tell me, Ed, is that an incremental increase in, in, in income? The answer is no. Employment in the financial sector is already close to an all-time high. Employment in the tech sector is close to an all-time high. Employment in residential construction is at an all-time high. So you've got a lot of sectors out there where you're, you're already pretty well done. You're already at peak or near peak employment levels in a lot of the areas of the labor market um, uh, that are the high wage areas. And those are the areas, by the way, normally, you know, we're coming into a new upcycle. Who's getting hired? Auto workers, manufacturing workers, durable goods, uh, housing, uh, residential construction. These are high-paid workers that drive the income side when you come out of recession. <laughs> Employment's pretty well at an all-time high in those sectors. So we're gonna. So you're telling me. You're, so you're telling me that the inflation, the demand inflation, the income reflation is coming from the restaurant industry. And the hotel industry and theme parks. That's what this recovery is all about. That's what the inflation story is all about, is all about 4% of GDP called the elements of consumer cyclical services that got savaged by the pandemic. That's what we're pinning our, our hats on. Meanwhile, we've got peak autos, peak housing. You, know, you, you, you were talking before about the dry powder. People are going to go out and spend. What are they going to spend on? I mean, I, I mean that that consumption that was lost in the service industry is was lost for good. I mean, are you going to go out and, and get like um, a haircut three times a week to make up for what happened last year, or are you going to go on four times as many vacations or go see five times as many movies? But the reality is that uh, the durable good side of the economy. If you look at durable good spending, uh, appliances furniture, uh, floor coverings, um, home renovation. I mean, home renovation last year in the context of a pandemic and a recession, as short as it was, was up 18%. Uh, 
in real terms, spending on consumer durables was up more than 6% last year. It, it, was, it was a stronger year last year for consumer spending on durables for a variety of reasons. And we know the reasons. Stuck at home. And of course, you're not going to go travel. Well, we'll just use those the money we're going to save by not eating out or traveling. And we'll, uh, we'll build a swimming pool. The people that built a swimming pool in the past year, well, let me ask you the question. The people that built a swimming pool or redid their deck, are they going to do that again in this coming year? No, there's no pent-up demand. And, and, and look, that's a $2 trillion industry is the market for consumer durable goods. We are completely saturated. I have a chart in, in my slide package that shows consumer durable assets per capita. It looks like a dot-com stock from 1999-2000. There's no pent-up demand, and that's $2 trillion. Well, that's more than, double, more than double the areas of the consumer spending area that you're talking about where there's going to be some pent-up demand. And so people are talking about the pent down. Let's talk about uh, the the dry powder again. I understand uh, you have some skepticism about the uh, the demand, uh, but what about the concept that we, we know political highlighted this in an article yesterday. They said that uh, new estimates from Congress's official forecasters show that the, the cuts from the Democrats for taxes for the middle income people was so large that those earning less than $75,000 on average will owe nothing in federal income taxes in the United States next year. And uh, if you are between 75 and 100,000, they predict that you'll only pay $1,800, 1.8% in taxes on average in the United States. So that's a massive tax cut that uh, you're getting. That money, do you really think that it's all going to be spent, or all going to be saved, rather? No, I, I don't think that it's all going to be saved. I didn't say that. Uh, and uh, uh, a chunk of it's going to get spent. Um, but the point that I'm making is, is this. Uh, the people returning to work from here on in are, are, are low-wage and their income is just going to be replaced. I don't think people have an idea. And, and it, yeah, the numbers you're talking about are not big numbers, okay, in terms of the incremental impact on what it could mean for consumer spending. That's point number one. Point number two is we have to understand that coming out of the pandemic, almost 25% of personal income today is coming out of government benefits. Going into the pandemic, we had just over 2 million people on at least one unemployment insurance benefit program. And here today, today, as we're speaking today with everything you're telling me and everything the market's done and all the consensus expectations, that the number of Americans on at least one benefit program exceeds 17 million. It's up more than eightfold from where it was before the pandemic. So for the, a lot of these people, when the plug is pulled on the stimulus and on the extended jobless benefits, that's going to be a pretty big income hit for a lot of people. So that's what I'm talking about. That overwhelms the tax relief you're talking about. This overwhelms. We have a situation where over 20% of personal income today is coming from government transfers. What happens when that changes? Now, maybe you'll tell me that that'll just never change. Well, that's a different discussion. <laughs> that is. Okay, and, and on top of that, on top of that, um, I do believe that we are going to be into a period, a prolonged period of an elevated precautionary personal savings rate. It's just very hard to estimate exactly uh, where the new equilibrium is going to be. Uh, we knew that the personal savings rate uh, during that period, uh, during the dot-com and tech craze that was creating all that wealth, uh, that the equilibrium savings rate was barely more than zero. And that was back in the 90s. And then after the dot-com and technology shock, the new normal savings rate was 4% heading into the great financial crisis. And then we come out of the great financial crisis. And I hope coming out of the great financial crisis, I hope that you were forecasting that we're going back to the old normal personal savings rate of 4% because we didn't. Ed, we, the new normal was 7% coming out of what happened with that 
with that shock. And when people say, well, how is it with all the policy stimulus and all on both fiscal and monetary that we had through good chunks of that cycle? How was it the weakest economic cycle of all time? Well, a lot of it was because we spent most of that time with a personal savings rate that was three percentage points higher than it was before the housing crisis took place. So um, before the, the COVID, the new normal savings rate, uh, and you could not, not have sold this in the 1990s when it was close to zero. We were just you know, spending everything we were making. But the new normal savings rate before COVID was 7%. So where's the new normal you know, uh, in the future? Is it 10%? Is it 12%? Is it 16%? Um, I mean, those are just things that uh, we have to build into the models because we don't really know. But I know that the new normal savings rate is going to be quite a bit higher than the old normal. And that is going to be a pervasive constraint on aggregate demand growth once we get past all this, quotes, transitory stimulus. And nobody knows where the savings rate equilibrium is going to be. I don't remember any economist saying it was going to average 7% before the pandemic, uh, but it did. And where's it going to average after the pandemic? And so this is, again, economics ultimately is a study. It's a, it's a behavioral science. It's a social science. Uh, we have to study behavior uh, and how shocks influence behavior. And one thing that we know is we know that going into the pandemic, over half the households in the United States, and of course, it's not a uniform distribution, but over half of the households in the United States going into the pandemic did not have enough savings, cash, or liquidity, or what we like to call dry powder. Uh, did not have enough of that to even get through three months of idle economic activity. My assertion, uh, my assumption is that that is seared in the memory of a lot of people. Uh, so no, I don't expect there's gonna be a Roaring Twenties spending party. Uh, I think that spending party is gonna end sometime in the summer and fall of this year. And I think that people will be surprised at how weak the economy is in the fourth quarter. Well, you know, I had to ask those questions. I, I think you know that I have some sympathy for what you're saying, but it's, uh, you know, it's good to get the uh, other side and to play the devil's advocate there. And, you know, by the way, I you did would, a great job. <laughs> I would add, by the way, I don't know if you saw, but the census uh, data that came out would suggest that the United States is getting older. And to me, that adds even more impetus for savings because the older the average age of the population is, the more that savings rate is going to go up. So that's an interesting facet. Uh, later, let's talk about the US versus uh, Europe in terms of what you're thinking about the US versus Asia when we come to investment decisions. And I think that'll be a part of it. But I want to ask you another question about what's happening on the corporate side. Because uh, even we've been talking about the household sector, but there was an article came out today, HSBC cutting office space by 20% uh, this year. They say that they're gonna cut it by 40% total eventually. And they're also reducing business travel by half. So what I would uh, say is that this is the new normal. The new normal is not like the old normal. That means that corporations are now justified in believing that some hybrid model can work. And while we figure out what that hybrid model is, there's gonna be a lot of churn in the economy. What, what kind of impact is that gonna have on the economy, uh, both in North America, Europe, uh, as well as in Asia? What it means is that uh, the last thing that's going to come back is going to be commercial real estate and specifically office uh, in the downtown core. And then you've got another situation where what about all these shops in the retail sector, uh, you know, that service, uh, you know, office workers downtown. Uh, and that's going to be uh, the, the thing that comes back uh, the slowest uh, over the next several years. And I, I don't know if it ever really fully comes back. Um, so office real estate, um, you know, and, and a commercial real estate market, I mean, that is a, a multi-trillion dollar market. I mean, that is, uh, you know, that's something that we have to also consider. So um, we'll put that aside and just say that that is going to act as a lingering constraint. Uh, and, um, you know, how we turn 
office space, maybe into real estate space. Maybe this is one of the answers for the housing shortage, looking at the uh, inventory situation uh, in the US, but also in Canada, you know, maybe, maybe all this office space gets somehow retrofitted towards residential. That could be one element, but that, there's, go, there's gonna be a profound change uh, in office real estate. And that's the last thing that comes back um, uh, well past the uh, worst point of the pandemic. Uh, you know, you mentioned about um, about travel. Uh, well, domestic travels will do just fine, uh, but foreign travel again. When you consider uh, how you know the U.S. is clearly out in front, uh, we could talk about some other smaller countries. Um, but uh, you know, uh, Africa. Uh, you're talking about Europe, uh, even uh, Asia. Look what's happening in India right now. Uh, it's such a delicate situation. Uh, who could have predicted what was going to happen in India? They, they produce their own vaccines, um, but uh, they opened up too quickly. And now they're paying the price, but they'll get through it. But the point I'm making is that the rest of the world, I mean, remember that, uh, you know, uh, U.S. is not as big an exporter relative to GDP uh, as, say, Canada is uh, or some of these emerging markets. But uh, still, it's a, it's a few trillion dollars of exports does contribute. Uh, exports in the U.S. are down 10% over the past year. Uh, one of the reasons why the trade deficit is ballooning isn't just because of imports, it's because demand in the U.S. has been better. Exports are actually in a bear market uh, in the United States. Well, a lot of that's reflecting the fact that demand in the rest of the world has lagged so far behind. Uh, you're looking at, uh, at, at travel expenditures from abroad. Uh, Tourism is a, a very important industry when you think about all the spinoff effects. Uh, it's still in a very deep funk. Uh, and that's, again, going to come back um, the least. You know, that might be, you know, when you're talking before about how the small caps ripped and, and absolutely outperformed um, the large caps, uh, you know, over the course of the past, you know, six to nine months up until recently was because the small caps are more domestic oriented and the mega caps have a much larger foreign uh, orientation. So there's part of that as well because the travel within the US uh, is actually going quite well right now. Foreign travel is gonna, just like commercial real estate, is gonna take a much longer time frame uh, to stage a full revival if it ever does. Yeah, you know, um, Europe uh, is behind, Asia is behind in terms of their reopening. So when we're thinking about the future and its impact in the United States, let's think about the future and where over the, short to medium term and also over the long term, there are opportunities in the market, uh, both geographic because of mentioning Asia and Europe versus the United States, but also in terms of sectors, which you were just talking to, as well as stylistic plays, growth and value. If you had to map that out in terms of ideas that you have the greatest conviction on besides uh, on the fixed income side, where do you see your greatest conviction geographically, uh, sector, and stylistically? My conviction, my, my highest conviction level is lower than normal because we're still living in this period, we're still living in this period of history. And, uh, you know, who knows, it's like if somebody told you in 1935 that, well, we're off the lows, we got FDR's New Deal, interest rates are low, uh, we're, we're well past the worst point. Uh, I mean, uh, I would say, well, you know, we're still in, in this bog of uncertainty. Uh, and uh, I don't want to draw the 1930s too far in a parallel. You can, you can draw a whole lot of other inferences. But let's not make any mistake here. We are still living through a period of economic history. Uh, we came out of the first pandemic uh, in over a century. And, and there's going to be all sorts of, uh, of aftershocks. Uh, you mentioned before about the aging of the population, 100% right. Uh, you know, the, 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 the median age uh, in the U.S. is over 38 years. Uh, it's going up a year every decade. The pandemic didn't stop the aging of the population. Uh, it hasn't stopped technological advancement. You see that in the productivity data, best year for productivity last year in a decade. Well, productivity is an inflation killer. Uh, the inflationists don't tend to talk about that. Uh, but the one thing that unnerves me the most is the, is the debt ratios. Um, and I just want to talk about that for a second. Corporate debt and government debt, uh, I mean, they're in the stratosphere. 
we already knew corporate debt was in the stratosphere. And then take a look to keep all these companies alive. Look at all the debt issuance in the past year. And people are snapping up triple C rated distress debt. These companies are hanging on by a lifeline. Um, but, uh, and the household sector has improved its balance sheet because by the way, as I said before, we are in a secular trend towards household balance sheet repair. That's why I don't believe the savings rate is gonna come down all that much. But when you look at the overall total indebtedness, or else the GDP, um, we, we, added, we added as much debt in the past year as we did in the previous 18 years combined. Uh, and you know, uh, I, I, I guess I'm from the old school. I still think that debt matters. And I think that's, again, one of the critical constraints on what the economy did in the past uh, 10 years. Uh, so, you know, the bottom line is that uh, this is a situation around the planet, but um, there's some progress being made. Uh, you know, when we talked before about that, the, the Chinese stock market uh, has sputtered in the past couple of months as it's been all gangbusters in the S&P 500 and the Dow and the NASDAQ and some other metrics, uh, China is deleveraging. Uh, I mean, I'm just going to say that um, that uh, China looks like a, a secular uh, growth play, uh, and uh, I'm saying that from a couple of perspectives. Um, whether or not they caused the pandemic, they made matters worse for the world. You know, <laughs> I guess there's reasons to believe that that's the case. But uh, they came out of the pandemic earliest. Uh, I would argue they handled it amongst the best. Um, they reopened early. They didn't have to blow their brains out on temporary fiscal stimulus, and um, their central bank didn't have to go to zero in interest rates. So I'm taking a look at China, you know, as the rest of the world, including the U.S., is gravitating towards socialism. China, the communist country, is moving more towards capitalism. Uh, I mean, imagine a country where you could actually operate uh, and do valuation analysis <laughs> on a positive discount rate. Boy, that's pretty rare these days, isn't it? Um, but they're in the process of deleveraging. They're deleveraging their economy. And that's one of the reasons why their economy is actually slowing down. It's not speeding up and why I'm skeptical on this commodity super cycle, because it can't happen without Chinese demand. But China's deleveraging, but you know, we did 10-year growth rates on the supply side of every country in the world. And we did this several months ago. And even though China's demographics aren't what they used to be, their productivity is huge. In fact, all their growth is coming from productivity. So, you know, when I take a look around the world, scanning the world for my clients for where to invest, uh, I always focused on GARP, no matter what. GARP is all that matters, growth at a reasonable price. Uh, what is the price earnings? What is the growth that uh, you're paying for in terms of earnings? And to me, that's what matters the most. Uh, and I look at China, I look at a lot of parts of Asia, uh, I look at Japan. Uh, and so one of my themes has been for, you know, for people to think that I'm some radical perma bear. Well, look, admittedly, if, you know, I don't have the pom poms out for the US stock market. It's usually overvalued, especially for the growth that you're getting. Um, but there's better valuation metrics if you're in the equity market overseas. So my theme has been go east, young man and young woman. Uh, for some time now, and it's worked out very well. Uh, but there's other places, like take a look at, um, I mean, there's New Zealand, there's Australia, there's some Scandi countries uh, that have very good secular growth rates. Uh, and, uh, and Germany is one in core Europe that I like a lot. Uh, and as well, the UK is starting to screen very well for us. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. What's your time horizon on, on, on that? Uh, you know, how, how tactical versus long-term are you thinking on these plays? These are looking at, uh, this is looking at, at, at 10-year secular growth rates against, you know, but look at, that's what I'm looking at over the, over the and I'm talking about over the, I'm not saying, well, you've got to have the same positioning in these markets over the next 10 years, but I am saying, and this is maybe maybe not for people my age, but if you're investing for your kids or for your grandkids, your grandkids, you, you want to be paying attention to uh, what are the 10-year expected growth rates 
Uh, and we looked at it from the supply side. We went to the Austrian school to do this and then looked at, you know, what is the valuations you're paying today for the next 10 years of growth? But that's how you should be looking at it. We've just become so myopic. I mean, I speak to most people today. By the way, it wasn't when I started in the 1980s in this business, it wasn't always like that. People had a long-term view. Today, today long-term for most people in the States and even in Canada is the long-term is lunch tomorrow. Um, so yeah, I do believe actually in long-term thematic investing. I hope that hasn't gone out of style, although everybody's become a Reddit day trader and, and that unfortunately is what makes the news. Um, and somehow in this process, rational long-term thought has been put on the back burner. Um, but this is, this is paying for growth over the next 10 years, which makes sense to me because equities, it's, it's sad in a way as to how the SV of 100 has become a, like a trading vehicle. Uh, it's a, it's, it, 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 it's, you, you know, <laughs> the equity market is a long duration asset. The equity market is a longer duration asset than the bond market is. <laughs> the S&P 500 is, it's like, when you think about it, it's a 50 year duration. So yes, when I'm taking a look at what I'm saying is that for the next 10 years, I know that for people that like to day trade, eh, that's not my cup of tea, but if you're a real investor, uh, at a certain age, that should resonate. And what about your uh, sector and stylistic uh, thinking over the next period? Because you know, when I look at say, uh, let's let's talk about large cap tech as an example. You know, Apple, Google, Microsoft, they have rich valuations, and they're also relatively large. So when you talk about growth at a reasonable price, both from their cap weighted uh, you know, uh, size, and also from the industries that they're in, that that's problematic. You know, to take it from a high level down, what, what does it mean when, uh, you know, the, the CAPE multiple is pressing against 37 at a time when the 10-year note, after all this whippiness and frenzy over inflation and growth, 1.6%. I mean, that's all you get for your money. The markets, if you're taking a look at the markets themselves, the valuations and everything are so stretched, but they're telling you that expected future returns uh, are extremely low, unacceptably low. We've harvested, you know, when you take a look at corporate credit, government bonds, uh, you know, equity markets, uh, we've harvested a lot of the future returns. And that's, you know, that makes it, I guess, exciting if you're an active manager, because now you can prove your metal. And, I don't think you're going to make money uh, throwing darts against the wall or by by buying. I think the era of passive ETFs, index buying. I think that they had their day, but it's over, and they'll come back again under different valuation metrics. But right now, you've really got to be a sector uh, rotation. You've got to be a great stock picker, and uh, you've got to come up with creative ideas uh, and find the needles in the haystack, which is going to be a big challenge. And so, in answer to your question, yeah, you know, there's. Uh, you know, what you call big tech, um, you know, the valuations are still very extreme. These are great companies, uh, but we both know that you can be in a great company, whether it's an IBM or whether it's a Walmart uh, or whether it's a Cisco uh, and still not make money as an investor for a long period of time. These companies will stick around. Uh, they're great companies, but will their stocks make you money? Uh, and I think that probably Cisco is, uh, is a bellwether from that considering where it was uh, at the peak uh, back in uh, 2000 and, and how many years it took to get back to that peak. And we know that story. Uh, so uh, I do think that there, without getting into actual names, uh, there is defensive growth uh, in technology uh, that I would argue are actually buy and hold. Uh, I think that, um, you know, healthcare to me is interesting how that sector is lagged. Uh, boy, the sector that was the solution uh, to the, uh, health crisis is the sector that's lagged behind. Uh, I, I think that healthcare, uh, certain parts of healthcare, uh, offer good value uh, and uh, good dividends. I think that uh, um, you know you could look towards um, you know the the uh, the financials, uh, well capitalized dividend payers. So if you're going to ask me which financials I like, I, I would probably say I like the Canadian banks. Uh, because they're amongst the best well-run institutions in the world and they pay a recurring dividend. And if you want to play actually a recovery trade, if you're in that camp, do it in a diversified way. Uh, well, you, you can do worse than, uh, than being involved in the Canadian banks. Uh, that's really been a core 
uh, advice of mine uh, for all the talk about you know bearishness. You know, people they like to listen to what they listen, but they don't really read my material. But the Canadian banks, uh, I'd say that look, um, uh, clean energy, green energy—that's obviously the future. That's not going away. Um, you know, and there's different ways that you can play that. Um, you know, by the way, uh, not so much in the U.S. But in other parts of the world, they are actually increasingly going towards uh, nuclear energy. And right. that's put a massive bid into uranium, uranium ETFs, some Canadian companies. Uh, and I wrote about that today in my daily. Uh, and so there are parts of the, uh, I think a lot of the commodity trade has been financial speculation, by the way. Um, but there's, there's parts that uh, are geared towards uh, cleaner energy. The only commodity, by the way, uh, looking at the Commodity Traders Report, uh, that doesn't have a speculative long position as natural gas, uh, which is cleaner uh, than most, mm -hmm. not totally clean. What's your view on copper? I'll put it this way. It's obviously uh, a critical input into what I'm talking about, but it's so overpriced. Uh, and uh, when you're taking a look, I, wrote, I mean, I wrote about this today, Ed, that when you're taking a look at the, at the net speculative long positions in the COMEX, the, the, net, the net longs in copper, are just huge. So much of this, people tend to think, well, we must have a booming economy on our hands. Look at commodities. No, a lot of this is speculative financial demand. It's true. It's true in in the uh, in, in in agricultural prices. Uh, huge. Uh, it's like I wrote about it today. I said I gave a little nod to trading places. Beaks, is that you? You've got to take a look at these net long positions in these. The net speculative long positions in the futures and options pits in Chicago and these commodities are off the charts, and coppers included. So there's, I just say that, you know what, this is, um, and of course, what, what better way for speculators to speculate than, than in commodities? Take a look at that speculative long positions in pork bellies. It's crazy. But people tend to think, did we all of a sudden change, did we change our eating habits overnight? <laughs> did we really? Um, but copper, there's too much speculation in the price right now, so I wouldn't touch it. You know, uh, Dave, I'm going to wrap up here and I'm going to give my uh, facsimile of what you're saying. And I want you to correct me with your own, because I think what you said at the end is the thing that sticks with me the most, that the days of just riding the wave are over. That is, you know, if you're passive, if you're going into ETFs, if you're counting on large cap tech to bail you out, uh, that's not where you want to be. Where you want to be uh, is where active managing uh, can have a role. And over a 10 year time horizon, if you're an active manager, there are pockets that you were talking about where you can make money uh, on the on the long side, as opposed to think people thinking that you're sh short. And at the same time, you're still you still haven't given up on the concept that bonds uh, offer value um, that uh, people have discounted. Uh, what's your view of your holistic uh, approach. What would, how would you change what I just said? Well, I wouldn't change uh, anything really. I think that we're, we're in a period where uh, valuations uh, in, in most asset classes are extremely stretched. Uh, I, I am thinking that, uh, you know, look, uh, we, we, we have come a long way on the 10 year note from, you know, 0.5 to, 1.6, 1.7, and maybe near term, there could be more upward pressure. I'm not gonna discount that. But I do believe that uh, we have a two standard deviation event uh, in both home prices, home prices relative to everything that drives home prices that are fundamental. And I would say that uh, everything that's fundamental that drives equity prices, the same thing. Um, and so we, we should be thinking without timing it, uh, what happens when Price to earnings multiples mean revert when home price to rent and home price to income ratios mean revert. The wealth effect, this is something we didn't talk about, uh, is what happens when the wealth effect uh, mean reverts and the impact that has on consumer spending and aggregate demand and inflation. Uh, I spend most of my time trying to think about what people will be talking about a year from now, not what they're talking about today. People, because I know that a year from now, we'll be talking about something different. If we get mean reversion in uh, home prices and equities, uh, I'm reasonably assured that inflation expectations are then going to melt uh, and we're going to have a huge rally uh, 
in the longer end of the treasury curve. Uh, so I would say that, yes, it's true, yields are still very low, but they're not as low as they once were. Uh, but the treasury market is also cyclical. And I think that uh, if we get the reversion of the wealth effect, all this talk about wage inflation, commodity inflation, supply shortages, what we're talking about today, we will not be talking about 12 months from now. I think 12 months from now, we're talking about fiscal withdrawal and the possibility of mean reversion in assets. Uh, and that's what I think will drive bond yields lower again. I think that's probably on the Fed's mind. They will not talk about it openly. But you have to be asking yourself the question because these people aren't idiots and they aren't ideologues. And we don't really know what they say behind closed doors. But you should be asking yourself the question, why have they pushed back on the bond vigilantes? What do they know about the future that the inflationistas and the bond vigilantes don't know? And that question, those questions will be answered in the next 12 months. Well said. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, another great, uh, great talk with you. I can't help but say that uh, next time we're going to have to bring it you against an inflation Easter. We're going to have to make that happen. Uh, I have people in mind. So get ready for it. Good thing that we're doing this remotely. <laughs> Thanks again. You too, Ed. Hey there, since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film, we work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube, and there were no kittens in sight. So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.